Legal discussion on tip today is brought to you in association with Lynch Solicitors Clan Mail on the web at lynchsolicitors.ie and at divorceinireland.com. And John Lynch from Lynch Solicitors is with me in studio. Morning to you, John. Uh, good morning, Fran. Um, we're going to continue with wills because yes. it, it, whenever you talk about wills, yeah. we get inundated with queries yeah. and people wondering about it all the time. What aspect of it are you going well, to... Well, I mean, the funny thing about wills, Fran, is it's amazing how um, I was sitting around with ten lawyers one evening and I asked the question, I said, how many of you have made wills? Would you believe it? And I said, how many have made wills that you'd be happy to stand over as in you're happy that they're up to date? And one is all I got. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? Well, it's like the old adage, you know, what is it, cobbler fixing? Yes, sir. Doesn't Do- doctor heal thyself. Yeah. thyself. Yeah. You know what I mean? And it's funny because I have made a couple of them and I've made them at different stages in my life when there's been kind of you know, significant changes going on and I probably should do it again mm. and I probably and I was just thinking because I was in the en- the dentist yesterday and I thought great business dentistry really and uh, sorry just have to be careful I'm not t- having a shot at dentists now or anything but he looked in and he went oh I see there's a filling there at the back I need to do that and whatever but you automatically will go back and do the filling yes and I thought to myself actually that's what I must do with the wills when I make wills with clients I must actually say to them listen are you okay if I put you back in in two years time to look at it again because I'd say very few people would say no Mm. and they would come back in again and have a look and what about the people would say to you and I say this facetiously maybe or maybe truthfully I'm not sure Uh, it doesn't matter because I've not believed anybody very much I presume people would say that to you well well, exactly and the the point is if you have nothing to leave there's no need to make a will says you and but like the reality of it is that there's always something that you need to deal with and it's quite incredible how of course and again that brings me in mind of my early years when I used to sell insurance in Scotland Uh, it's 40 years ago now you were selling insurance in Scotland in Scotland yeah which is quite a challenge yeah yeah I I actually started because I worked with an insurance company this is it I'm just I'm trying to sidestep here because I read three cases this morning I'm not sure how how well I read them but anyway (coughs) Just to give you the story, when I was uh, selling the insurance, one of the things that you learned is that there are always questions that the answer to is yes, of course, you're right. And when you're selling insurance, you'll often be faced with the, the thing, which you look, you know, I've nothing. Mm. I've no money. I can't mm. afford it. And sure, look, what difference does it make anyway? And the answer to that is, well, if somebody takes that view, they take that view. You can't answer that one that, well, if I have nothing, do I need to make will? Well, the answer is, of course, if you have nothing, there's nothing to will. But there's very few situations where people aren't living in the house. They don't have some assets, they mm. don't have personal things that they might want to do. And yes, of course, if you don't have anything, there's no need to make the will. But by and large, there is. And the first case that I was looking at this morning, because I was <coughs> we were talking last week about the situations or rather why you should make wills but more importantly if you are going to make a will why you should try and anticipate uh, what 
difficulties might arise if you don't make them properly because there's making the will and then there's making it properly and as you know the, the probably the number one question that you're often asked when somebody asks me about wills I say well what, how much is it going to cost and my answer to that is well what would it cost if you don't make it properly and the answer to that is quite a lot of money and it costs both emotionally and you know financially it mm. cost and we, we touched on last week that the courts now are starting to look a lot more closely at the issue of costs and also at the issue of damages if somebody takes on the job of executing the will. And you remember I, t- I said to you that if, if I'm talking to you about making a will and you say, well, okay, right, John, I want to make a will, what do I need to decide or what do I need to look? Well, the first thing you need to decide is the very first question you asked, what do you have? Mm. So you list out what you have. You then say to yourself, okay, right, I know what I have. What would I like to do with it? As in, who would I like to leave it to or whatever? And you make that decision. But one of the important decisions that you have to make is who's going to carry out your instructions. So that's your executor. Now, uh, without complicating it, if you if you fail to appoint an executor or if you don't make a will, what happens in those cir- circumstances is you have what we call an administrator. But it's the same thing, effectively. It's somebody who's going to carry out, in the case of the will, the instructions under the will. In the case of, uh, of no will, they'll carry out the instructions as per the legislation. So mm. in other words, you have the Succession Act and that determines who gets what, if you know what I mean. But one of the interesting cases that I was looking at this morning was that... Um, it was a row uh, between siblings on the death of a mother who made a will. Now, it was interesting in the sense that it kind of covers a couple of pointers when you're looking at uh, making a will. And in this particular case, the son, you remember last week we were talking about the whole issue of section what, what we call uh, well uh, section 117 so uh, I'll explain that when you look at a situation where the courts have been asked to say or to determine whether or not you've looked after your children yes and where you have a situation and the, the kind of common kind of position on this is that obviously the more need there is in the child the higher the chance that the court will take the view that the child should be looked after so for example if the child has a disability or if you've looked after a let's say you have four children, you've looked after three of them very well and you haven't looked after the fourth one at all kind of thing. So in that scenario that you're, you're looking at, you're looking at the court will review the will. But the court will also look at a situation where you might be on a promise, as they say, in this case, the promise of the farm and or the business or the house or whatever. So you might be in a situation where you might have cared for a parent for a long, long period of time or parents for a long period of time, or you might have given up pursuing a career to go and work the farm mm. or you might or to work the business or whatever. And that type of situation, you're not you're you're contesting the will, but you're contesting the fact that the will wasn't didn't properly include you in in the will. 
um, and you're grounding it on there being a kind of an understanding there over the course of time. And that's called promissory estoppel, or they've been recently called it t- testamentary promise, but it's the same kind of thing. It's kind of, you kind of, the court intervenes and says, even though the courts take the view that what you put in, the, in your will is entirely a matter for you, the court, which is almost like laissez-faire, if you like, but the courts will intervene in certain circumstances. They also intervene, as you know, if you have a situation where the court considers that the will was made, but there was some sort of something wrong with, with the circumstances under which it was made, either because technically there was a flaw and or a situation where there was a flaw in so far as somebody was using a lot of pressure or undue influence is the term that's used so you know the classic case that I've often I often remember of the um, son who brings his father in and the man is very frail and quite elderly and it's quite clear when he comes in to me and I talk to him because obviously when you're going to talk to somebody to make their will, you don't include anybody else in that conversation unless obviously you're in a situation where they're able to communicate, yes. you know what I mean? Yeah. But it became quite clear to me that this gentleman who I knew for a long number of years clearly did not want to make the will that he was being asked to make. So he was being brought in to make the will to benefit the person sitting in the waiting room, if you know what I mean. And, uh, you know, those are situations that you need to be very careful about, obviously, if you're dealing with that situation. Actually, somebody was talking to me the other day about that situation because, again, you know, they said, well, how do you balance the call from the family member and undue influence, if you know what I mean. How do you make sure that you're in a situation? Because, after all, let's be real here, you know, you know, in a number of fam- family situations, one of the children will take the responsibility of driving one of the parents here or there, bringing them shopping or whatever. And there's a line between, if you like, undue influence and looking after your parents. Course, and I'm yeah. saying that, obviously, that's something. So it's a matter, obviously, for well, do, do you have, as a solicitor, John, do you have to determine that? Yes, you do. It's part of your function to determine whether or not the person in front of you has testamentary capacity. Right. And it is actually when they changed the legislation they changed the legislation on capacity recently as you know um, or maybe as you don't know but they did change the way we look at capacity. Yes you spoke to us about that. Yeah. yeah. And the whole idea now with capacity it's not a singular event in other words you don't kind of go in there send uh, whoever it is off to the doctor and say to the doctor well does so and so have capacity you now have to look at it in context and you have to look at what they call functional capacity Mm. so you know you may be able to do one thing but you may not be able to do another thing so you have to be careful about that but they didn't introduce that specifically into the area of making wills. They left the area of wills to, if you like, the old contextual situation in law, which is that is, and actually we're involved in a case at the moment, and it's it's an interesting case from a factual point of view, insofar as Obviously, I can't give you any details on the very general details of it, but it's an interesting case insofar as the testator, i.e. the person who made the will, was in a nursing home, but had a history of being very insular in her outlook 
vis-a-vis family members. In other words, you know, she wasn't gregarious. She would contact only on her terms. Mm. Uh, so there was a long mm. history there of, I, I was going to say, um, her being, you know, the way people would describe, she's a bit odd. Yes, now, yeah. she was odd in the nice... Eccentric, yeah. Yeah, eccentric. Yeah, yeah that's better. Thank you. <laughs> she was eccentric in the nice kind of a way, you mm. know. I mean, she just classic, like, I don't know, did you see that one, the film about the, the lady in the van kind of scenario? Oh, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. the politician's home. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. Yeah. So she was kind of that kind of a character. Yes. But the whole issue that has arisen now was the type of will that she made was an extremely strange, uh, eccentric will, if you know what I mean. And the, so the, the issue that's going to come up is, was this just an eccentric will or was there something you know, did she actually have capacity to make it or not? Because one of the interesting criteria under the new capacity legislation is that it's not up to us to decide that even though somebody appears to be making an eccentric decision that, you know, Mm. you would have said, well, that's a bit off the wall. I don't think you should be doing that. It's not a matter for us to decide that. It's a matter for us to look to the person, look to the circumstances and decide whether or not they have capacity in, in, in to, those to circumstances. To make that decision yeah. eccentric though, though, though it, it may, Though it yeah. may be, yeah. though yeah. it may be, you know, yeah. the dog and cat's home or whatever yeah. kind of scenario, of you know. Yes. Uh, and I know for all your cat lovers, that, that's an absolutely great request to make. But if you look at this particular case that I was looking at the what came up in it was first of all the absolute jump out on it was that and I'm going to kind of uh, not be specific about the case insofar as I read it very quickly and it was about 60 pages of a judgment and I might have the facts somewhat wrong or not as accurate as I would like to have them but when the mother made the will there was land involved. There was the the house, family home was involved, um, and th- there were bequests, financial bequests involved as well. So there there was money, there was land, farmland, and there was the house. And she appointed the son as executor under the will. And but when she made the will, she had in her mind. I'm surmising the intention that she didn't want the farm to go outside the family. So the son was had no children at the time she made the will. So I would imagine what was in her mind was she was saying, well, you know, I don't want the farm leaving the family. So if he doesn't have any children, I don't want it going to his wife. So she, what did she do? She made a will leaving it to him for his lifetime. And but if he had children, she gave them the, him the power to appoint the farm, in other words, to give the farm to his children. Uh, but if he didn't have any children, then the farm was going to go back to the sisters, his sisters. So that was that was the start. Yeah, that was the starting Very point. Very complex. Yeah, yeah, that was well. There was there was more than that, yeah. as there always is in these things. But there was also the situation that over the course of the years prior to her death, she had given him a site. But having given him a site, and the site was located between the farm yard and the house, sorry, sorry, I'll start again. When she gave him the house, 
or the, uh, the site, he built a house on it. She never transferred it to him. So, and never willed it to him either. So you had a situation where he had a house built in a situation where uh, he didn't have any title to it. So that was no, complication number two. Complication number three, just in case you didn't have enough, was that between his house and the farmyard was her house, i.e. the mother's house. And she left the mother's house to the, to the sister's. And in leaving the house to the sisters, which is fair enough, she left the house to the sisters, but the septic tank and the percolation area were actually on the mother's house, or the land around the mother's house. So there was complication number wow. two, right? So here's, and I call him Johnny just for the sake of making it easy for myself. Here was Johnny, he gets... The will opens the will. He's appointed as the fellow to do the job to carry out the instructions of his mother. So he's appointed as, as executor, and his very first issue is, hold up here a second. I only got it for life. Like I mean, this is this isn't on. I mean, and to make it even more complicated, he had worked the farm all his life, and he'd been promised it by his father or at least there was an indication there that was a promise by the father. So, that raises the very first question, which is, you are appointed as an executor under your parents' will, and you're looking at the will and you're going, oh, crumbs, this isn't what I thought was going to happen. So what do you do? Can I leave you at that for a sec? Right, so what do you do? Let's leave it on a cliffhanger. Join the conversation in Tipperary. Contact us through Facebook, Twitter, or email tiptoday at tipfm.com. All right, John. So, quick summation of Johnny. Mm. <laughs> right. So, so Johnny, Johnny went about doing his job. Right. He actually, the executor's job is to, number one, find out what's in the estate. Mm. Okay, so you, you go about finding out what's there. And number two, you distribute it. They're Mm. the two kind of major jobs that the executor has. Now, obviously, there's a lot in the meantime that is involved in what you have to do to do that. And we might cover that again maybe next week. But in this case, uh, the result wasn't kind to the executor. No, no, no. You're cheating. Now, where's (laughs) that? No, 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 no. But I was just saying so far, I mean, he's discovered. No, no. So far, so far he goes, yeah, fine. No, so far he's going fine. He goes into his solicitor, the family solicitor, and he goes into the family solicitor and he says, okay, let's let's do whatever has to be done. He goes into the family solicitor to, to do it. They prepare the first document that you have to prepare. When you gather all the assets, when you find out what's involved, you have to compile what they call an inland revenue affidavit, an IRA, ironically enough. You prepare an inland revenue affidavit for submission to revenue so they know what's involved in the estate for the purposes of tax, etc., etc. But you also have to swear an oath, which is so he's who's signing off on an oath which basically means you put your hand up and you say, I solemnly swear that I will administer this austerity in accordance with law, etc. When it got to that, he said, hold up a second. I can't say that, he said to his solicitor. I'm I'm kind of uh, parodying it now. But he said, I'm not going to do that because I have issues with this. So he then went off, I think, to another solicitor and said to the other solicitor, 
do I have a case here? Can, you know, can I contest this well? And he eventually got an opinion from senior counsel. We all bow our heads when you hear I'm getting an opinion from senior counsel. But you get your opinion from senior counsel, which is effectively looking at the law and telling you what it is. And the senior counsel, whoever he got, looked at the law and said, I don't think you have a case here. Now, obviously, he would have looked at the facts and sifted them and gone through the law. I wonder to myself whether or not that might be accurate if, in fact, you look at the the cir- circumstances that if he gave up, he didn't pursue a career and he worked the farm and he had the promise. He has two avenues of, of, of argument there. Mm. One, that he was promised it. Number two, he acted in that promise he acted to his detriment because he's now left with a life interest on the farm and there was a case as we as we know i mentioned to to before involved in county Tipperary. this is county kilkenny maybe that made the difference i don't know maybe so, but yeah. this was county tip and in county tip we recognized the fact that there was a right in those circumstances but anyway just to cut to the chase on it when he was asked, he was then asked to sign the, an oath and he said, no, I can't sign this oath. He went after the solicitor, got his counsel's opinion and his counsel said, no, you, can't, you don't have a case. What did he do? He stalled. He did nothing. He didn't do anything despite being asked hmm. to do stuff. He, well, continued to work the farm, obviously. He, well, he continued to work the farm because, yes. yeah, he would have yeah. gone into possession of the assets, hmm. if you know what I mean. But anyway... His first mistake was that what he should have done and what the court said he should have done was that he should have renounced his entitlement to act as executor. And therein, if you like, lies the first kind of critical decision that you need to make if you're an executor. So the lesson that you would you would say that one should learn from that is that if you're in a situation where you're conflicted in your role as carrying out the instructions of the deceased, you should step back. And there is a step back option, which is a, what we call a renunciation. So what you effectively do is say, no, I'm not going to act as executor, and you put it back to the next person entitled. In this case, it would have been the sisters. So the sisters... Now, what actually happened then were the sisters took action, went made an application, because you, you can make an application under the Succession Act to remove an executor. And interestingly enough, there was another there was another case that I was reading this morning where an executor was actually removed and the whole circumstances under which need that need to prevail to remove an executor was discussed. But anyway, we'll just leave that mm. aside for a second. Just to say, by the way, that it's not something you can do easily. Okay. And you, there needs to be good reason to do it. And by and large, and I'm now answering, even though I said I'd leave it aside, you're, now, you're looking at a situation that if you're going to remove an executor, you must, not must, but I would say that the general rule is you'd have to establish some sort of kind of something shady or balancing close to shady in the dealings insofar as the one that, that, that was there recently was where it was the mother was the person who was nominated to look mm. after the estate. And she actually transferred a farm to two sons, even though other family members should have got the benefit of the sale of those assets. Right. So she actually sold the farm to two sons for, say, 400000 or something and banked it into her own bank account. Didn't account to anybody for it. She didn't account 
to them for the rent that would have come out of the farm before she sold it and she basically stalled off for about 10 years so you have delay there in one case and second instance is that you're not properly reporting all of the assets so in that instance you can remove the exaction right. but okay. just go back to your so the sisters go back to the sisters yeah mm. they took action they asked the courts to remove him and by consent he agreed to be removed as executor. But then what he did, then what he did was he lodged what we call a caveat. Now, what's a caveat? Again, I'm sure you're well versed in your your Latin and caveat is the Latin for a warning. Mm. So effectively, uh, what you do is, let's say you are the person nominated to be executor of an estate and let's say I'm a beneficiary. I can, if I decide I'm going to contest the will, if I'm not happy with the will, I can lodge a caveat, a warning in the probate office, which is the official office that deals with taking out and dealing with all the paperwork on an estate. I can lodge a caveat in there that basically, if you like, it's like putting a little block in under the wheel of the car. It stops everything moving. Now, it can't stay there indefinitely. And in this particular case, it highlighted something that I've often discussed, would be, the, would be the way I might put it, with my colleagues, who, when I'm dealing with an estate, will lodge a caveat to, like, put a little block under the wheel of my administration. And I'll often say to them, well, now, lads, if you want to put a block there, you must be, have good reason to put it there. You can't just do it there tactically just to delay to me up, to try yeah. and negotiate. Yeah. And interestingly enough, in this particular case, the complaint that was made by the sisters was that having consented to them administering the estate, he then lodged the caveat, which to them was a deliberate attempt to block everything. Mm. The court took the view, first of all, they took the view that actually there was a little bit of fault on the sister's part. And when I say, and again, this always reminds me of, I used to get hugely frustrated when I set up business first, that whenever the revenue wrote to me, they wrote to me as if I knew something about my accounts. And of course I didn't because I used to give it to an accountant. Yes. And you know the way they write to you and they go, you didn't do this and you didn't that. And you used to go, but sure, I didn't do it at all. It was my accountant did it. Yes. But you're personally... Of course answerable yeah. and supposed to know everything about everything that happened. Now the same principle applies when you're dealing with law. You know, this poor chap got up, Johnny got up at the end of the case and I think he may have been a lay litigant I could be wrong but he may have been a lay litigant and I th- to be fair to the poor devil he got but up at the that end. That means what, that he represented himself? Yeah, was yeah. It? Yep, yeah. yeah, exactly. Uh, you're getting into the terminology there <laughs> Fran. but he got up and he said, look judge uh, now, maybe he didn't, maybe his barrister did it, but anyway. He said, look, I didn't know anything about renunciation. Sure, I didn't know what that was. Nobody told me. I didn't know that I could have renounced. If I'd known, I would have renounced. And then he, he got up and he said, and I didn't do anything deliberately. I didn't delay anything. And when you talk about these caveats, sure, I didn't know what a caveat was. How can I be held responsible for the caveat? And the judge, to be fair to him, said, unfortunately, Johnny, uh, ignorance of the law is no defence. And uh, he looks and he goes, what does that mean? <laughs> it means you can't say, you can't say, I didn't know. Right. That's what you pay solicitors for. So the uh, result to them. Oh, but the, the interesting sting in the tale and the reason that I read this case and that I thought it was interesting was he, the judge awarded 
damages against Johnny. The judge told Johnny that he had paid 36 grand to his sister. Why? Because the judge considered that by reason of his delay in administering the estate, the sister had lost money. Now, she'd made all sorts of arguments as to how she lost money. She said she was stressed by the whole thing, which I've no doubt she was, and she looked for money for stress, but the court didn't award her money for that. She said there was a huge drop in the value, and that's a big issue, by the way, if you think about it for a second. If somebody fails to administer an estate within time, and by reason of failing to administer the estate and not liquidating the estate, in other words, selling one of the assets, and there's a drop in value, where does that last fall? It's very it usually, interesting, yeah. Well, it falls on the beneficiary, yeah. by and large. So the question that came up in this case was, did that last fall? And he went through a very detailed analysis as to how long it would have taken because of complexity of the estate mm. to administer it. And he decided that there was no fault in that area, that in fact Johnny's hanging around not doing that and wasn't really going to impact because it would have taken a while anyway. So, and I think he left him off the hook on that one. But where he put him on the hook was that the sister was entitled to a legacy of 25000 and she got into financial difficulty and had to sell a, an apartment in, I was going to say Latvia, but I think Latvia. Mm. And the bank foreclosed on it and she lost 25 grand in drop in value, which she could have got if she'd got her request. Right. And he reckoned she should have got her request. So Johnny ended up having to pay 25 grand. And in, t- in terms of the, the actual, the, the rest of the characteristics of the will, they, they stayed in they place. Stood. They, they stood. stood. They oh, stood. Yeah. They Very stood. Very interesting. Well, one quick question mm. there, though. This was the mother's will. She was predeceased by the father. Mm. Did he not make a will? He would have, but he probably... And was probably, that not relevant? No. No, because he would have made a will and his will was made, done and dusted and executed. In other words... Leaving everything to the mother, obviously. Probably. probably. It's the classic husband and wife will. More than likely it was the husband and wife. Well, it must have been if she had all the assets. Right. But if he had something in that will that determined that when the mother died that it would all go to the son, would would that have... Influenced it would have, but he would have had to have made now, and and that's raising really interesting questions because the father could have left a will which would have left the farm to the wife for life with the remainder, you know, with remainder is a technical term, but he could have left the will, the, the farm to the wife for her lifetime, and then after that to the son. He could have done that way. Right, but now, he obviously didn't do that. No, he didn't. didn't come up. But the other thing, of course, you have to be careful about is the legal right share of the spouse. So if if he made a will, i.e. the husband made a will, which meant that, that the wife didn't get one third of the overall estate, under those circumstances, she could challenge his will because he didn't look after her under the Succession Act. That's fascinating, isn't it? All right, listen, there's a heap of questions in there for you. But look, we'll, we'll sift through them or we, we, we'll send yeah, them on to you. Yeah, you might, might have a look through them as well. Uh, John uh, Lynch there from Lynch Solicitors.